He's only going to have us read three verses, which is unlike Carl, but he's, going to, he's got some themes there which I'm sure he's going to unpack and probably read pieces of scripture as he does that. Leviticus chapter 23, the first three verses. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. This is the word of God. Shall we just pray for Carl as he presents uh, his message on this? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for scripture. Thank you, Lord, for the three verses we could read and the whole chapter there, Lord. And we pray as Carl goes through it with us this morning that the Spirit will empower him and and that the congregation that we all here will be receptive to what he's got to say and and that we can all apply something useful in our life as, as your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I realised a little while ago, uh, as I was preparing for uh, one of the uh, one Sunday, that uh, in my small Bible, uh, you know, whole chapters take up only a fraction of a page, and so I always, I always look at it and I think, oh, we can read that; that'll only be short. And then we get here, and, uh, and it's always longer than I think. But uh, anyway, it's good for us. Uh, and I've timed it; it's never as nearly as long as you think it is. But anyway. That's another story. It's, uh, it's, it's nice to be back here. Uh, it, it's uh, good to see you all again and uh, I'm sure it's great for you to see me as well uh, as ever. And uh, I just can't resist. But anyway, we're back in Leviticus as, uh, as Chris said and, uh, and this morning we're looking at the festivals. You might remember a couple of weeks ago we looked at the Sabbath and we kind of looked at the, uh, kind of a whole Bible overview of what the Sabbath uh, is all about. Uh, it was a day of rest, looking forward to release uh, from slavery uh, to sin. But today we're going back and we're, we're looking at uh, this chapter 23 and, and all these other uh, seven festivals uh, which made up a really key part of Israel's life uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, I, I was racking my brain this week trying to think of different festivals that uh, you might go to. I, I couldn't think of any uh, in Launceston until I was just before I suddenly remembered Agfest. I've never been to Agfest. That's one of the. Are there other festivals? That Festivali. Oh, that sounds very haute couture. Uh, are, are there others? Or uh, I, I don't know. I'm not really a festival person. I, I, rem- I still remember uh, the first year that I lived in Geelong. Someone invited me to. Uh, a festival affectionately, although somewhat disturbingly, known as Paco Fest. Uh, and I'll never forget standing by the side of the road watching the parade of Home and Away stars uh, going down the street. And uh, that kind of just really typified the kind of event that it was. It was uh, rather unspectacular. There were uh, lots of things going on, but, but none of them which particularly grabbed my attention. Uh, 
as I, as I said, I'm not really a festival guy, but when you look back at Israel's uh, religious life, festivals were a key part of the way that they served and worshipped God. Uh, they were a constant part of their life all through the year and they pointed forward to uh, their waiting or the coming of the Messiah. This side of Christ, uh, we know, we saw this a few weeks ago, we know that these festivals aren't important anymore because the reality has come in Christ. Paul says that in the New Testament, that uh, these that things don't matter anymore because the reality uh, has been found in Christ and we don't need to go back to them. We don't need to go back to the shadows because in Jesus we have that reality. So as we look at the, these, these festivals this morning, uh, we're, we're going to try and understand how they are fulfilled in the New Testament in Jesus, but also what they teach us about living in between the cross and the final resurrection of Jesus. What, not only how do these festivals point to Jesus, but what do they teach us about living for Jesus now in the situation that we find ourselves in? So we're going to be reading through uh, bits of the chapter as we go along, so if you've got your Bible, uh, it'd be good to keep it open. The first two festivals are found uh, in verses 4 to 8, so let me read those verses. Verses 4 to 8. These are the Lord's appointed feasts, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month of the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, on the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days present an offering made to the Lord by fire and on the seventh day hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Both the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, looked back to God's rescue uh, of his people from Egypt in Exodus 12. Uh, you might remember on their last night in Egypt uh, God sent an angel of death to strike down all the firstborn sons living in Egypt. Now the Israelites uh, could escape that judgment by killing a lamb and by painting its blood on the doorposts, uh, the door frames of their houses. And when the angel of death came through Egypt and saw the doorposts, on the, uh, the blood on the door frames of their houses, uh, he would pass over. He would uh, leave that uh, that Israelite household. Uh, in that very first Passover meal, the people were to eat the meal with their cloaks on and their cloaks tucked into their belt with their sandals on their feet and with their staff in their hand. The point was that they had to be ready to leave, they had to be ready to to make a run for it when the time came Uh, and it's that same haste which meant that they had to bake bread without yeast. Uh, They didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise with the yeast in it and so uh, they they made unleavened or uh, or unyeasted bread uh, if you might like to call it that. the point is that they didn't have time to wait. Uh, that theme of, of Passover finds its fulfilment uh, in the New Testament when Jesus uh, died as the Passover lamb par excellence. Uh, so uh, just as the people painted the door frames of their houses with, with the blood of a lamb, uh, in the same way through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross we can escape God's vengeance at the last day. Uh, that is, if you trust in Jesus, you can know for sure that God's judgement will pass over you when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. That was the reality that both these festivals were designed to celebrate in anticipation, but also as they look back to the, to the original uh, deliverance from Egypt. 
In other words, the first thing that these two festivals teach us is the importance of remembering and celebrating our rescue from sin and from the, from the wrath of God. One of the keys, key ways that we do that, this side of the cross, is, uh, is through the Lord's Supper. The Passover meal uh, is the only festival, actually, in this whole chapter which has any kind of New Testament equivalent. Uh, on the night before Jesus died, he celebrated the Passover with his disciples, but he also transformed it. He also took it and he changed the meaning of it when he took the wine and he took the bread and he said that the wine represented his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins and the bread represented his body given for those who trust him. In other words, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember and we celebrate our rescue from sin which God brought about through Jesus. But there are other ways, aren't there, that we, uh, that we can celebrate and remember uh, our rescue from sin and from God's wrath. We can uh, remember and celebrate our rescue uh, through singing songs about it. We've done that a couple of times already this morning and we'll do it again. Uh, we, can, we can sing songs not just in church but, but as we drive our car we can bust out a hymn, we can bust out a hymn in the shower in the morning or uh, as we're doing the washing up, we can take any opportunity to sing songs about, about God's deliverance. We can, uh, we can remember and celebrate our rescue from God's wrath through hearing the, uh, the Bible preached. That's one of the ways that we celebrate uh, God's deliverance. Uh, we can remember and celebrate our rescue from God's wrath through praying to God and through thanking him uh, and we can remember and celebrate our rescue from God's wrath by telling other people about what God has done in Jesus. There, there are loads of different ways that we can celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and that is what these, the first thing that these festivals remind us of. They remind us of the importance of remembering and celebrating our rescue from the curse of sin and the wrath of God. The third festival uh, which comes up is the Festival of First Fruits, and you can read about that in uh, verses 9 to 14. Uh, this is what it says there. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord, so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb a year old without defect, together with its grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made to the Lord by fire, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter of a hin of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. The thing to notice, I guess the primary thing to notice about the festival of first fruits is that it was tied up with the possession of the land, the promised land. Uh, this festival couldn't be celebrated at the time that uh, this command was given in Leviticus because the people were, were, had not yet entered the promised land. They hadn't received what God had promised. That didn't happen until uh, the time of Joshua. So there were two stages, if you like, of Israel's deliverance and rescue from Egypt. There was uh, the initial rescue, there was, there was the initial uh, exodus from Egypt and then sometime later there was the final entrance into the promised land. 
And these first three festivals, in fact, really all of them in a way, but these first three festivals uh, celebrate different, different aspects. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they remembered the rescue, the Exodus itself. But the Festival of Firstfruits was designed to remember the entrance into the land and, and the receipt of what God had actually promised them. If you, are, if you look in Deuteronomy 26, you get more details there of what this festival involved. And uh, one of the key things that it involved was the person uh, who brought their first fruits, this first uh, bit of grain that they had harvested from their field, that person was to come and they were to say this whole sort of big thing, you know, they were to recite to the priest. And part of it was this. I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the Lord, to the land the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. So as they brought this, this sheaf of grain, they were to say, here it is, I, I, I testify today that God has brought us to the place that he promised. The first reason, in other words, were, were, were the evidence, the first evidence of God having done what he'd promised. That's significant then when we come to the New Testament where two key things are described as first fruits. Uh, the first is in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus and his resurrection from the dead is described as the first fruits. The second is in Romans 8.23 where Paul writes, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we, await, as we wait eagerly for the adoption of our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So what Paul is saying is that the receipt of the Spirit, the possession of the Spirit in us, is the first fruits of what is yet to come. So there are two things that the New Testament lists as evidences uh, of, what God has, uh, of what God has promised uh, and evidences that God will complete what he's promised. The first evidence is the resurrection of Jesus and the second evidence is our own spiritual resurrection through the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's the, the new life uh, and the love for Jesus which comes by virtue of the Holy Spirit uh, given to those who believe in Jesus. They are both first fruits of the fulfilment of God's promise of redemption and proof that God will complete what he has begun. So the second thing then which uh, these festivals teach us, the first was to celebrate uh, uh, rescue from God's wrath. The second is to celebrate the beginnings uh, of the fulfilment of God's redemption. It's a, a bit of a truism, I suppose, and pretty self-evident, but none of us here, I can say safely, have been raised from the dead, physically. Uh, we, each of us live in decaying bodies. Uh, I don't know about you, but barely a day goes by in my life when I don't discover some new ache, some new ailment, uh, and I'm only just 32. I can only imagine how much harder it is for those even older. Uh, but but the, here is what 
this festival of first fruits is saying. The resurrection of Jesus is God's evidence that what he has done for Jesus he will one day do for those who trust in Jesus as well. None of us have been raised from the dead but as we look at the resurrection of Jesus we can celebrate and look with greater hope to what God will finally do one day for us as well. Just as Jesus has been raised from the dead, so too will we if we trust in Jesus. But more than that, none of us, not only have none of us been, been made perfect physically, none of us have been made perfect spiritually either. We fall into sin, we keep falling into sin. Our love for Christ ebbs and flows. It goes in fits and starts. One day we're hot, the next day we're cold, the next day after that we're lukewarm and on and on the cycle of mediocrity goes. But even the beginnings of love for Christ and joy in him and even the beginnings of rest in Jesus and trust in his goodness and mercy and kindness, even the beginnings of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, even the beginnings of growing discontentment with sin, even the beginnings of those things are evidences now already that what God has promised he will bring to completion. They are the first fruits. They're the first fruits of the promise, the first hint, the first glimpse, the first taste. the first taste of the completion of what God has promised. So that's the second thing which these festivals were designed to teach the people and they're designed to teach us as well, to celebrate and to enjoy and to look for with anticipation because of the beginnings of what God has done. The fourth uh, festival is the Feast of Weeks and that can be found in verse 15 to 22. And this, uh, this festival is connected with the Feast of Firstfruits. So it says there in verse 15, From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour baked with yeast as a wave offering of firstfruits to the Lord. Present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old, for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering together with the bread of the first fruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. On that same day you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Seven weeks after the first fruits were brought uh, was, the, was the Feast of Weeks. Seven weeks plus one day. 
the Feast of Weeks represented the end of the harvest. So the first fruits, that was the beginning. The Feast of Weeks, that came at the end. It was a time when the people could look back and rejoice and thank God for all that he had given them in that year's harvest. The uh, New Testament significance of the Feast of Weeks can be seen when you realise that the other name for the Feast of Weeks was the Feast of Pentecost because uh, Pentecost is a, is a Greek word which uh, means 50 and it refers to those 50 days, seven uh, weeks uh, of seven days plus one days. It's 49 plus one. Uh, and Luke records at the beginning uh, of Acts that it was on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit first came. The Holy Spirit came first on the apostles and then on that same day on 3,000 other people who believed the apostles' message about Jesus. Now, I have to admit, uh, I'm not quite sure that I, that I understand completely uh, why the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, how that is tied in with, uh, with these festivals in the Old Testament. But I think uh, in the context of the book of Acts, which is about uh, the gospel going out to the nations, the point seems to be that the, the, uh, not, to, not to celebrate the beginning of the harvest, uh, that was the festival of first fruits, rather the point seems to be uh, the end of the harvest, looking ahead to the end of the harvest when all the great multitudes from every tribe and language and people and nation will be brought in and will bow their knee before Jesus. In other words, the reason the Holy Spirit was given uh, on the day uh, of the Feast of Weeks was because it was looking forward, looking ahead to the end of the great harvest, the great spiritual harvest at the end of the age when God brings in people from every tribe and language and nation. Our ideas of salvation often, are they not, so myopic? They're narrow and they're limited. We, when we think of salvation, our great temptation is to stop with the news that I've been saved. But the Bible always pushes us further than that. It always pushes us further to the redemption of vast multitudes, even the redemption of creation and the created order. Your, my, your salvation and my salvation are, are wonderful realities but the truth is that they are small things compared to the vastness of what God has in mind. We're just drops in the ocean compared to the, the vastness and the greatness of God's grand plan to bring redemption to the ends of the earth. The Feast of Weeks was designed to point toward that reality. So these festivals teach us to celebrate and to remember God's rescue from, uh, from, from slavery to sin. Uh, the, these festivals are designed to teach us to celebrate the beginning of, God's, of the fulfilment of God's promises and, and here thirdly they're designed to teach us to celebrate the inexpectation, the end of the harvest of God's salvation. The uh, fifth festival that is mentioned in this chapter is found in verses 23 to 25. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the first day of the seventh month you are to have a day of rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present an offering made to the Lord by fire. The uh, Feast of Trumpets 
uh, had a fixed date. It was always on the first day of the seventh month. The seventh month is the big day. All the rest of the feasts are in the seventh month. The uh, uh, only thing really which is said about this particular festival uh, is that the people were supposed to gather like all the others. There were offerings to be made like all the others. But the unique feature... uh, of this festival is that the day was to be celebrated with trumpet blasts uh, or really when we think of trumpets we think of uh, you know like brass instruments but the, the, the trumpets envisaged here are, are kind of like ram's horns so don't think uh, Handel's Messiah the trumpet shall sound think uh, the Ewoks you know in Return of the Jedi uh, with, the, with the, the ram's horns going around the forest. The, the, the key feature of this day then was, was the sounding of these, of these ram's horns or these trumpets. And no more is actually said about it than that. But as you work through the Old Testament, you begin to see that the trumpet, the, that these loud blasts from trumpets are associated with some pretty important and significant events. In Exodus 19, for instance, trumpet blasts are associated with the giving of the law. Uh, in the book of Joshua, when the people finally cross the land, the first city that they defeat, that is conquered, is the city of Jericho and the walls of Jericho fall down upon the blast of the trumpets from the priests. In 2 Samuel 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem for the first time and he leads it up to the sound of trumpet blasts. The trumpet blasts become associated in many ways then with with, with entry into the land with, and with the victory of God. The Feast of Trumpets then, I think, was designed to look back uh, to that victory of God as, they came, as the people came into the, to, the, to the land, to the promised land, and it was designed to point forward then as well to the ultimate victory of God at the return of Jesus. And that's how the trumpet blasts, these trumpet blasts are taken up in the New Testament. Uh, so, for instance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15... Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The fourth thing then that these festivals were designed to teach the people, designed to teach us, is to look forward in anticipation to the victory of God at the return of Jesus. One day, all this will be over. All this fight against sin, all this fight against the decay of life, all of that will finally be over. God's enemies will be put away, sin will be put away, death will be put away, sorrow will be put away, our decaying bodies will be made new, what is corruptible will become incorruptible and imperishable, And what a day that will be, won't it? When Jesus comes, when the trumpet sounds and the victory of God becomes an absolute, final and unchangeable reality. But there's a dark side to the trumpets as well. In some ways, uh, these trumpets had a warning function. You see, the trumpet blast was not only a sound of victory, but it was also a sound of war and alarm. It has to be, doesn't it? The opposite side of victory is defeat. 
The sound of victory as the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, that was the sound of victory for for the people of God. But it was the awful sound of defeat for the people who lived in the city of Jericho. The prophet uh, Zephaniah takes up uh, that idea of the, the, the horrible kind of impending doom of the sound of the trumpet when he speaks about the last day in, in Zephaniah chapter 1. He says that the last day will be a day of trumpets and a day of wrath when people's blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Just as surely as Jesus has died and has risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, just as surely he will also come to bring completion of God's victory over his enemies. And he will come with the sound of victory, sound of trumpets, which will be a sound both of victory and of defeat. That day will be a day either of celebration or of utter devastation. The Feast of Trumpets pointed forward to that day, that day of both victory and defeat and urged the people to live within the compass of God's salvation. Well, the uh, sixth festival is attached to the Day of Atonement. Uh, It was celebrated ten days after the Feast of Trumpets uh, on the tenth day of the seventh month and you can find that in verse 26 to 32. The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of this seventh month is a day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Do no work on that day because it is the day of atonement when atonement is made for you you before the Lord your God. Anyone who does not deny himself on that day must be cut off from his people. I will destroy uh, from among his people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is a Sabbath of rest for you and you must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening you have to observe your Sabbath. We looked at the Day of Atonement last year when we looked at Leviticus 16 and there's no need to canvas Uh, all of that again except to say that it was the one day of the year where the high priest was able to go into the most holy place where God uh, met with his people uh, and on that day the high priest would atone, he would pour out blood in the most holy place uh, to deal with uh, the sin which the people had committed against God. The point to notice though in this festival is that it's the one time in the chapter where there is a penalty given for not adhering to the festival. No other uh, festival mentions the consequences of of ignoring uh, what happens on that day. But this festival does. What happens if a person ignores the Day of Atonement? Well, the person uh, who works on the Day of Atonement, it says, will be cut off and they will be destroyed The idea was that to work on that day, to not take heed of the Day of Atonement, was to despise God's means of reconciliation. The Day of Atonement was the one day where where God symbolised the reconciliation that was to happen in Jesus Christ. To despise that day was to despise that means of reconciliation. And the same is true for us this side of the cross. 
The Day of Atonement found its fulfilment in Jesus' death. Jesus' death brought reconciliation with God and forgiveness from our sin. But to despise that, to despise Jesus' death, is to despise God and to invite destruction. There is no other way to know God except through Jesus Christ and his death on our behalf. The fifth thing then which these festivals teach us is the centrality of God's means of atonement. There is no other way. It was the the day of atonement, if you like, which, which shifted a person from the devastation of the day of the last day of the trumpets to the celebration of the last day of the trumpets. So that was the fifth thing, the centrality of God's means of atonement. The last festival uh, in this chapter is the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacle is just a fancy word for tent. Uh, it was, uh, and the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated five days after the Day of Atonement. So we're still in the seventh month. Uh, and it says there in verse 33 to 44... The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites on the fifth day of the seventh month, the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days present offerings made to the Lord by fire and on the eighth day hold a sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. It is a closing assembly. Do no regular work. These are the Lord's appointed feasts which are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing offerings made to the Lord by fire, the burnt offerings and the grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings required for each day. These offerings are in addition to those for the Lord's Sabbath and in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all the free will offerings you give to the Lord. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest. And the eighth day also is a day of rest. On the first day you are to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are live in booths. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses announced to the Israelites the appointed feasts of the Lord. This uh, last of the festivals involves seven days of feasting with choice fruit and with uh, palm fronds. But the key ingredient and the place where it gets its name is that the people were to live for seven days in booths or tents. According to verse 43, the point of that was so that the people would remember that uh, on the way from Egypt to the Promised Land, the people had uh, lived in tents. In other words, the point was to remember that for a long time, God uh, had the people live in temporary accommodation. Uh, They had been rescued from slavery in Egypt, but they hadn't yet set foot in the promised land and in between times they lived in these tents in this temporary accommodation. The same theme is taken up in the New Testament to refer uh, to us as we trust in Jesus and as we live between the cross and Jesus' final return. In 2 Peter 1, Peter says, uh, refers to the tent of this body, 
So he says our bodies are tents. Expressing the same thought, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, for while we are in this tent, in other words this body, while we are in this tent we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. See the point is, again, we sit in between times. We've experienced the rescue that comes through Jesus' death and resurrection but we await our full entry into God's new creation. When Jesus comes again, he's going to restore this broken world and he's going to crush his enemies and all those who fled to him for help and salvation will be brought into God's new creation. The sixth and final thing then that these festivals teach us is that we live in between times. We live this temporary existence as we live between the cross and the return of Jesus. That uh, came home to me only recently uh, while I was on holidays. I got the dreaded phone call from the real estate agent uh, where they said that uh, I was going to have to move out, that the owner of the, of the property that I live in I wanted to move back in uh, and that I was going to have to move in the next six months. Uh, this will be the, the fourth time in two years that I've had to, to move house. <laughs> I was an oldest and the owner of my place died. I just seemed to be uh, immense misfortune uh, surrounding my houses. But uh, I, I'm sure many of you have experienced that same reality of having to move from place to place and the uncertainty that that brings. As I was uh, talking about this with uh, my family, my sister wisely said, I wonder what God is trying to teach you by having you move around so often. And I think at least God is trying to teach me this. And he wants each of us to learn this as well. This isn't home. It's amazing, isn't it, how powerful the sense of home can be. We so desperately want to have a home, a place of security, a place where we can relax. There's almost this intangible sense of belonging, isn't, isn't there? You, know, you don't even have to be in a, in a place for very long that the thought of leaving it becomes your worst nightmare. But the Feast of Tabernacles was a yearly reminder to the people of Israel that even though they were in the land that God had promised, they still weren't home. We've received immense blessings from God, haven't we? We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We have peace with God. We have joy in Christ. We have love for our brothers and sisters and love from our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the reality is we're not home. We're just passing through. We live in tents. My house is not a home. It's a tent. Your house is not a home. It's not an everlasting eternal dwelling place. It's just a tent. Your mortal decaying body is not a home, it's a tent that you're passing through. 
You don't put light fittings in a tent and you don't plaster the walls because it's stupid. You make it nice, don't you? You make it a nice place to be. But living in a tent is always tempered by the reality, the ever-present reality that the day is coming when you have to pack up and go home. The Feast of Tabernacles was designed to remind Israel and us that we're passing through on the way to home. There are lots of different dimensions to these festivals but at its heart the whole system was designed to make one point and that is that we need to live with God's redemption plan in Jesus Christ at the very centre of our daily lives. It is the great centrepiece God's salvation in Jesus Christ is the great centrepiece not only of true celebration but it's the great centrepiece of life itself. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the pattern of redemption sketched out long ago in the book of Leviticus. And Lord, thank you not only for that pattern, but for the greater reality which we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for our rescue from guilt and from sin and from your wrath. Lord, we thank you that by trusting in Jesus, your wrath passes over us and we can know you and have life. Lord, thank you that in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we have the first fruits of what we will know truly and experience one day. Lord, thank you that in the spirit we have, uh, we partake in the resurrection already today. Lord, keep us from despising your salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that not one of us would turn away from you, but that we would embrace Jesus and that we would trust him and that we would love him. And Father, as we wait in eager expectation for our bodies to be clothed in life and immortality, we ask that you would help us to travel lightly in this world, that you would help us to remember the impermanence of our lives here. And Lord, we ask that you would grant us to see the final goal of salvation, the glory of the resurrection and the wonder of worshipping you in your presence for eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.